You are now listening to Renaissance. Welcome to the first episode of Renaissance Soul, the podcast, the podcast about Detroit music history. And for this episode, I wanted to do a deep dive into the history of Renaissance Soul because it was originally a website that I started back in 2001 centered around the, the work of Jay Dilla, you know, JD. And it grew, you know, to just Detroit hip hop and then to Detroit music. Then I took a break and now I'm bringing it back as a, uh, as a podcast. And we're going to just really tackle specific subjects for that. But before we go into any of those uh, subjects, I wanted to tell you my story about that website and what we're going to do and my connection to Detroit music as a whole. And what I wanted to do, because I was having a hard time like just sitting by myself telling the story is that I wanted something, someone to interview me. So I went out and I got the perfect person. His name's Dan Charnas. He is a highly acclaimed hip hop journalist. He's the author of the big payback, the history of business, the history of the business of hip hop. He's written for every publication back in the day. He worked for profile records and deaf American records and he's just like a good dude. And when we're talking right now, he's actually in the middle of working on a book about Jay Dilla. So I want to welcome to Renaissance Soul, Dan Charnas. How you doing? Hello, hello. It's such an honor to be here with K-Fresh, the really the, the godfather of Dillology. Dude. You want to be real about it. <laughs> and it's funny now that with, when it comes to like – Dilla information it's just like as soon as social media hit and after he he passed away like all my work seemed like it went thrown to the like to the wolves or something because everybody just come up with their own stories and people still have like their third hand fourth hand stories and I know you're getting down to the bottom of that right now <laughs> yeah well listen uh, you know just for everybody out there I've been working on this book on the life and legacy of Jay Dilla for about three years now. And that's how I, you know, met K-Fresh, but really I've known the work of K-Fresh for years because it is that foundation, you know, the first discography yeah. of Jay Dilla's work that, you know, I, I've read on like the Stone's Throw website and uh, you're, your Wikipedia page on Jay Dilla is essentially built on a lot of the knowledge that K Fresh, uh, you know, accumulated over the years. So it's an honor to be on your podcast. It's an honor to talk a little bit about uh, your story, and um, you know, let's let's get started. Right, let's get started, man. All let's right. talk about my early years, man. Yes, let's talk about your early years. Are you going to refer to yourself in the third person too, like? Well, you know, when K Fresh was young. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that. Uh, whatever. I'm not. Nah. All right. So, the, you know, 
and again, I've spent the last, I don't know, three, two, three years interviewing Detroiters uh, and people from the surrounding area. And it is, it is an incredibly special place. So tell me a little bit about, you know, where in the area you're from. Tell me a little bit about your parents, where you went to school, your family. Just give us, give us the place. Yeah, I came, I grew up right off of 8 Mile on the east side of town. Um, Warren, Michigan, people, you know, would learn about that city from Eminem and the movie Eight Mile and stuff like that. Um, My life wasn't exactly like Eminem's, but there's a lot of things that were kind of underlying in that movie that, uh, that I experienced. I experienced the, I know what the, you know, I know what the Eight Mile Divide was where north of eight miles where the white people live, south of eight miles where the black people live. And that was a, a strong presence when I was a kid. And I, and I heard a lot of things, you know, <laughs> that, um, that's what, you know, about black people that were like very crazy. You know, I didn't really understand it. I didn't really, I didn't really, you know, buy into it, you know, so me, Cause at the same time, you know, we're, you know, I'm seeing like, we have these sports teams in Detroit and in Michigan, you have like the bad boys Pistons, you have, you know, of course, you know, you have like Barry Sanders, you have, you know, everybody that's on the Tigers, you have the fab five from the U of M, you know, and you've seen all these, like these great black players doing good for the city. And then I'm also getting into starting to, you know, getting early steps of hip hop, you know, I would, you know, when I was a little kid, I was like really into like, like heavy metal and stuff like that, you know, and, but my first, but my first love was uh, Jimi Hendrix. So, and I was always an inquisitive kid. So I would read magazines and catch documentaries that were on TV about Jimi Hendrix. So I'm like seeing all this thing where I'm like, okay, I, I hear all this sort of racist things and like in like just society about black people, but. So would you say like the middle school and the high school that you went to in Warren, would you say that, you know, you were going to school with a lot of, uh, you know, white folks who had racist, bigoted attitudes and like. Yeah. Like actually like I was a part, I was in a part of Warren that, uh, that where my school district was in the, the next city over, which was East Detroit or now it's East point. Um, and yeah, you know, I feel like a lot of them maybe didn't even realize they had bigoted views, but they did, you know? So like, it was just like, you know, if you're, you know, only time people crossed eight mile is like the drunks from uh, on my side crossed over to go to uh, the, you know, Piccadilly's, the, the, the liquor store or go to the, the adult movie shop right there or um and then the, then the only time like anybody f- south of eight mile came on the other side was to go to wizards arcade which shout out to wizards arcade people will know what that is you know right you've been and around your mother your mother wouldn't let you go to that arcade exactly because there's a lot <laughs> exactly you know and um you know and of course there might have been shit going down in wizards arcade you know but um there it was just that thing you know so yeah there was just i i i just didn't get it because i was like i know the i know like 
black people can't be that bad, you know? <laughs> and cause I've seen all this great stuff, you know, and I started getting into hip hop eventually. And uh, this is probably around, I was like 12 years old when I was like really like getting into rap and hip hop. It was like around the time when the chronic came out, um, like the big radio, uh, you know, the radio stations here were 96.3, 97.7. And um, they were playing just a, that was, that was probably, you know, back in the last times when you had like real good hip hop stations, you know, that were like digging deep, you know, like, and I was, just, oh, you know, I had my tape in my, uh, my boom box, like, you know, had pause taping, like recording all these dope jams that were coming on. Who did you, you sort of, uh, have friends you know colleagues who you came up with who shared your uh you know your your loves no your the funny thing was when i was a teenager i didn't really know anybody that was that you know that liked the stuff that i liked you know um there was i, I really was like i was really i, I really was the hip-hop kid at my schools like that was like my thing, you know, I would wear, I'd wear rap t-shirts like every day and stuff like that. Every once in a while I would bond over something. Like I was just talking with my, uh, my friend, Jeff, you know, we became friends in eighth grade and me and our other friend, Ray, who passed away many years ago, we really bonded over, uh, Raekwon's only built for Cuban links, huh. you know? So like right when it came out, you know, we really bonded up that, but, um, the thing was all that at that same time, I was also like in tune to what was going on locally because artists like the insane clown posse and Esham and Nautis and the house of crazies were actually very ubiquitous to my side of town. And right. they were, um, and this was before the term juggalo got, you know, coined this is before anybody right. had like ICP had any deals, you know, um, this was when they were still had like a huge, you know, they were just locally, but like they were all popular. And I was always in like Ishan was my first, it was the first rapper that I ever loved, you know? Right. And were so ever into the, the awesome Dre's and, uh, you know, that's sort of that, that I didn't first get, generation of, I didn't get into, I didn't get into them until later on, maybe a few years later. And when I started, I started sort of, um, the thing was, thing was really cool about that time in regards to uh, going to like Esham shows or ICP shows or even Kid Rock shows at that time is that they always had a lot of local openers. Some were bad, but some were good. And you could, you could, you started going down those rabbit holes of like, or just actually like listening to them, you know, I think that's with anything with hip hop, you know, you go down the rabbit hole of like, you look into the credits, see who, uh, see who's featured on there, see who they thank, see who they sampled. You know, I did the same thing when it came to Detroit hip hop. And I, you know, and I was always going to the record stores like, um, you know, like Record Time in Roseville, um, Melodies and Memories in East Point, uh, Hot Hits in Roseville. Those were like my main three. They were all on Gratiot. And sometimes I'm, I'm like a teenager. So I have to like, you know, I'd go out with my mom, like, grocery shopping and like ask her to you know stop there you know or our, in the summertime I know that game yeah or in the <laughs> summertime i would just walk there because it was only like it was kind of a it was, it was a couple it was kind of a walk but it was still like i didn't have anything else to do you know it's the summertime i put my you know walkman in 
go buy some tapes, you know, then I got some new tapes to listen to on the way back, you know? Right. So like I was, that was, that was my place there. And I was just kind of in a place where I was just like, I want to know more. Right. Let, let me ask you a question. So you, you seem like you're maybe a little young for the rhythm kitchens and the hip hop shop. Oh, totally was. And uh, I was never that person who went to stuff underage. Right. My mom wouldn't let me go out to be, be out like that. <laughs> at, at a certain point, you do uh, start coming downtown, I think, to St. Andrews. right? So tell, tell a little bit about how you begin to interact with the actual Detroit scene in real time. This, yeah, it kind of goes like this. I remember um, going, well, first, yeah, I was, I was starting to go to, uh, and I was always going to the record stores, but I really wasn't interacting with the DJs that were working there. Right. Because there was always DJs working at those, at uh, like Melodies and Memories in record time. Always. It didn't, didn't matter what time. There was always known DJs working at those places. Yep. And, but I wasn't interacting with them because I was just going to the tape section, you know. I, you know, I was just going to the hip hop tape section. That's it. You know, just shoot right there. But um, it wasn't until like maybe like my junior year of high school or senior year is when I started really like interacting with people. And I think it all kind of started like, um, well, if one, one, one incident that really started was my senior year, I only went to school half a day because I had a co-op job. So I had this job like doing tech support for UPS software and it was right over there on seven mile in Harper, like seven and a half in Harper, like in Harper woods, you know, and I was and I was working with a lot of people that would just go out to the hip hop scene. They weren't rappers or anything. They would just go out to the hip hop scene. And I started like, I started talking about what I knew and then blah, blah, blah. They were really shocked that this little skinny white kid knew all this shit about hip hop. And uh, I remember there's this one guy. He was actually a part of the scene, though. He was like a musician. His name was Gerald Jeter. He, um, he let me borrow the Slum Village, like uh, volume one tape. And I had seen this tape before, but I didn't buy it because it was like mad expensive and you know how it looks. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I'm not going to pay 13, $14 for this. Now I'm like kicking myself that I never did. But, uh, he let me listen to it. And I'm like, Oh, boom. Yo, like, I like, yo, I like this, you know, this is dope. And at the time I had already bought five elements yesteryear's EP that was fully produced by JD and that was mud thyme and uh, proof who would later be in D12. So I already had that tape, you know, I had a bunch of other like hip hop tapes, but it was a lot of those uh, conversations I had at work, but then I started meeting people at the record stores, like um, at Melodies and Memories was uh, a guy named Jeffrey Woodward. He's still there. He's a more of a, he's more into UK garage. He's that type right. of DJ. Like he's the man here when it comes to UK garage. And then at the same time, um, like shortly after house shoes started working at, uh, melodies and memories. And this is, you know, this is the same time I'm, uh, you know, working at this job and people at my job had already told me about house shoes. They're like, yo, you gotta meet house shoes. Like he's like the blackest white dude you ever meet. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So like I met him at a, you know, at a, melodies and memories and we just started chopping it up about jd stuff and uh about everything and he you know he was he was he was a big wealth of knowledge about the local scene and everything 
Right. And, and at the same time, uh, the thing was over the, around those times, how shoes was going back between melodies and memories and record time back and forth, you know, working at both, you know, he, he would leave one to go to the other then leave one, to go back to the other. So I was constantly going back and corner music, uh, 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 tenure. Yeah. He, yeah. He also had 10 years there, but like there's this time when he was just going back and forth between those two and right. nowhere else, you know? So I was, I was always at the record stores then like always to the point where like at melodies, uh, one of the owners yelled at me like, look, you can't just be coming in here every day and not buying anything. But most of the times I was buying things <laughs> or giving something to shoes, you know, and how shoes made him apologize to me for that. You know, I was like, but, you know, I'm, and I'm cool with, you know, all of them and everything. But, you know, at the same time, like, that's where, like, but then at the same time, I started going down to, uh, to uh, St. Andrew's Hall for their three floors of fun. And this is like the death rattle of three floors of fun. You know, this is when it was transitioning into, um, to being on the radio too. But House Shoes was still spinning there, but they were putting him in the basement or on the third floor. Right. So there still was a hip hop presence. And even the main floor, which was, you know, geared towards the radio was still popping at that time right. because that was like, that was like 99, 2000 and 2001. That's when you have like the dip set stuff and right. like all that, you know, all that stuff like, that came after like, like. So we're really talking about the, the mainstreaming of hip hop, right? And the fact that the Jay-Z's of the world are becoming so much more accessible yeah. to the, to like, the non-specialist DJs and to pop radio, right? Now hip hop, hard, what we used to call hardcore hip hop, those artists are getting played on, on pop radio stations. So it, it, uh, it's a transition. It's a transition that's happening all over the country, but it's, you're feeling it in Detroit around the time that you're coming into St. Andrews in 98. Yeah, and, and at the same time, I'm seeing that Detroit's finally getting shined too, mostly because of Eminem. And you're seeing like the whole city go nuts. You know, you're seeing every other person wanting to be a rapper. You know, you're seeing, you're seeing people like, well, I don't know where they're getting their money. I'm not going, I'm not going to uh, assume anything investing in people who are rappers, you know, and uh, you're just seeing tons of rappers. Everybody's like, and it was a fun time. Like that's, you know, the time between like, like, 98 99 2000 2001 like those are years where like i kind of say like d12 was kind of running the city mm -hmm. because the you know you know the the popularity of uh, of eminem then like d12 puts out an album and they're making and there's just this fun feeling around it there's probably a lot of fucked up shit going on and there's a lot of bad a lot of bad decisions being made but it was a fun time. And that was sort of like where I was coming up to, you know, I was going down to St. Andrews. I was meeting all these different people that, um, you know, just from the scene and everything. And it, it was just a fun time just going, just starting there, you know? Well, now we got to back up though. Cause you said a lot of bad decisions being made. <laughs> What's one of those bad decisions? Yo, the bad decisions that were being made is that, um, Detroit hip hop never had anybody to guide people like, so you're having this big, this big spotlight being shine on the city because of Eminem and because of other people, you know, um, you know, slum villages album would eventually come out, 
Um, you'd, you know, you'd have Royce the five nine being signed. You'd have all these people being signed, but none of these cats, like these, like there's so many of these cats that don't know what to do with themselves and how to handle themselves, how to handle hatred from people, jealousy, you know? So, and there's nobody to sort of like guide them past all of that, you know? So there's a lot of fights, a lot of guns being drawn, a lot of, stupid shit that didn't need to like really happen but like they were still sort of stuck in a street mindset right even though the music industry which is a corporate mindset is looking at them it's also really interesting you know considering detroit's legacy that when it came to hip-hop there really was no uh you know barry gordy kind of uh uh, uh corollary for Detroit hip hop. Like they always compared Russell Simmons in New York to, to Barry Gordy when right. he was first starting Def Jam. But there was no great Detroit hip hop record label. They were great Detroit hip hop artists, but you know. And even then when it, until like maybe the late nineties, I felt like Detroit music, like Detroit hip hop was a little, a little behind the times. But it wasn't until, I guess, I, I'd like to say this is an influence from Jay Dilla, is that once he started making music and making music with other people mm-hmm. and kind of teaching other people, and a lot of this also is an influence from Amp Fiddler also, the godfather of Detroit hip hop, you know, he taught everybody. But it, it was when like, it was when like Dilla started doing stuff, you know, really doing stuff with like tribe and De La Soul and people were seeing that people, you know, see that he was making money that the artistry kind of caught up, you know, because if you, if you go back to the, you know, you know, there's a lot of great records from like Detroit's most wanted and, you know, awesome Dre and AWOL and smiley and everything. But it just seemed to me that they were a little behind the times in in sound, not lyrics because those, Everybody was rapping their asses off, but it was, even though those do all, everybody got signed to something, there was just something that not, that was missing there that didn't like correlate to the next generation. We had that little time period, like in between though that first wave and then the next wave where there was kind of, eh, we don't know what to do. You know, it, it was kind of like that time when, it was, it was the time in hip hop when Pete Rock came out and the level of production went, went through the roof. You know, he, 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 he showed a whole new way of, of, you know, doing production, but we didn't have anybody in Detroit except Dilla. And it took a few years for him to really get caught on to right. really do that locally. You know, so there was this like a time when, yeah, we had the talent, but we were just, we were still making music that had the same samples, you know? Right. Well, listen, let me ask you a question. So you characterize this period of time when you finally start poking around St. Andrews as the death rattle. But my question is, can you tell me a story um, that sort of is indicative of why being around all of this was like just so worth it, worth coming back again and again? Oh, man, it was like, the thing was, it was, it, it was perfect because you were hearing all of the records. Like you're, you could go anywhere in that building and hear all of the records 
that was hot in hip hop, in all aspects of hip hop. You could hear the, you know, the J, like the Jay Z or the 50 Cent. Dude, like when Get Rich or Die Trying came out, I guess like everywhere, you heard like two thirds of the album at any club night, you know? And you could hear those records, but then at the same time, you could hear like Slum Village demos or like the new, every new like promo that came out, you know? I remember the, I remember the the night when House Shoes first played the like the demo that just dropped of uh, MOP's Annie Up, wow. like like that's a song now that you just feel like you know you don't live without. But I remember the first night of actually somebody playing that, like him literally getting the. I was at and I was at um at record time the day he got a package that had the uh, Annie Up promo in it, you know, and he pl- and I. And I was there that night, and this is this is a joint no one's heard yet, you know? And we know what it would become, you know? And it was stuff like that, being able to hear, like, like those records, like, that we now are just, we still go nuts for. Yeah. You know, being played even before the album comes out, you know, the promo 12-inch, you know? That's what was so great about it. And you'd hear both that and... On all forms, even like the, you know, the independent stuff, you know, you'd be like, oh, dude, oh, what's that? You know, it would be maybe some sort of like, you know, raucous records record, you know, or whatever, you know. Right. But it, that's what you're getting, you know, you're getting those promos like, like that we call classics now. Like yeah. Discovery. You got to hear the first, even like you even got to hear like the, you know, the demos of stuff like how she was, would bring like a CD deck or a tape deck or that player or something, you know just to play stuff that he wants to play from people locally, you know? So right. you just, you heard new music during that time, even towards the end of, you know, like of, of St. Andrews three fours, you know, you heard like what was going on in hip hop that night, whether it's underground or mainstream. Right. Now there is a Detroit scene and it's a place and then there's this other thing that's starting in the late 90s, this virtual space that's not bound by geography uh, yeah. on the internet. And uh, I believe around this time, uh, 99, is when this website uh, out of Philadelphia called OK Player yeah. opens its message board. So tell me a little bit about how you get involved in that community. Oh, man. like. This is, yeah, this is my thing is that like, I was so from the start, like into like the hip hop culture on the net, because it was at the same time that I'm just like, I'm already going out and about, I'm learning about all this Detroit hip hop stuff. And like, I found, and I found, uh, found out about OK Player really quickly, you know, and I was on those boards and stuff like that. And what were the discussions like for people who... (laughs) For people who know OK Player as just some one of a billion websites that focus on hip hop, tell us what it was like <laughs> to be on this very early version of OK Player, frankly, on a very early version of the internet when there weren't any hip hop. Yo, the original, like the old school internet during that time was the greatest, man. That was like a great time, man. But like you could, you could, you could connect with so many people that were like-minded on the OK Player board. But at the same time, it's kind of like on the level of like, what if like hip hop Twitter was just on a message board mm-hmm. like 20 years ago? <laughs> because they were having the wildest takes, the wildest uh, like 
conversations, but then they would have good conversations. It was a hub to like share information. A lot of people connected with people. That's what, you know, that's what I did. You know, it's like I connected with people and um, I was one of the outlets for people for Detroit hip hop um, on that. And um, actually some of the people who you encountered on that website. Oh, like the people, let me see here. Um, I would eventually like, and these are people that I met before they even put out stuff, you know, people like Flying Lotus or Nicolay or um, uh, Byron Blaylock. Um, dude, there's, I, mean, I even met even Detroit people on there, I remember. And um, Motown Girl, right? He was on there. Oh yeah, Motown Girl and and Kyle, Urban Kyle Girl. Um, um, and of course, Questlove was very active, right? Yeah, as, Questlove as a, as a and, and Fonte, you know, Fonte too, and mm -hmm. um, all these cats. You know, and you know, later on when I would actually have the website all done and everything, I would you know figure out more people that knew about that I didn't even realize I was interacting with. Right. But the funny the funny thing was about OK Player was was that the conversations about JD's music was the reason why I started the website. Was the Let's reason why I started, that. yeah, was the reason why I started this, the discography. I made the discography first and then, and I even posted it on uh, OK Player. And then I made the website later. Interesting. So <laughs> tell, tell us about, so just, for, just to give everybody a kind of a, a primer, right? So obviously JD, from coming out of Conan Gardens in Detroit, um, really gets his first big break when Q-Tip, he meets Q-Tip and Q-Tip kind of takes him under his wing and right. introduces him essentially to all of his native tongues and post-native tongues friends. So, yeah. you know, we're talking the Delas and Buster and Mad Skills and Farside. And that is how... JD gets introduced to the world of hip hop as a producer. And then Q-Tip actually invites him in essentially to become part of this production collective called the UMA, which in a sense is contiguous with a Tribe Called Quest. It was like being invited to become a member <laughs> of a Tribe Called Quest. Right. Um, and yet in this time period, when he starts working with Tribe, 96, 97, there is a change in Tribe's sound and in, in their albums. And there's some, there's some controversy about this. So tell us a little, since you were there, Yo. talk about it. <laughs> I always say that like the hot take that JD ruined like Tribe Called Quest, broke them up is like the first real like internet hot take first bad internet hot take of <laughs> the lifetime like the of first bad hot take real but the, okay this you know the reason why the reason why I started doing the discography was because of that you know because of he was under the uma so you didn't know what work he really did which because not everybody worked on every song you know because the uma was him Q-Tip and Ali but and anything that they put out it always said, just like the Tribe Called Quest stuff, it would always say, produced by a Tribe Called Quest. Yeah. You wouldn't know whether Ali or Q-Tip did the beat. It was the same thing for the UMA. It was always produced by the UMA, even if JD had done 90% or 100% of the beat. 
And there's some that he didn't even do. He didn't even work on. Right. That, and, and at the same time, you're getting a lot of things that were Uma remixes, Tribe Called Quest remixes, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then there's also a thing, too, you know, people really didn't. It, it happened a few times where, because, you know, you know, JD would be, is associated with Slum Village, associated with Brock Records, associated with RJ Rice. So there would be things that would be labeled as, you know, an RJ Rice mix that he did, or right. it would be labeled as a JD mix that maybe RJ Rice did. There right. was things like that where there was, like, I don't know if there's too many producers that had to deal with that. When you look at their catalog, you had to actually pick apart who did what, you know? Well, <laughs> so you felt in some way, this is really interesting to me, like you felt in some way as a fan, not really having hung out with JD oh, much, no. right? I never, Just I as never a met him. Fan, <laughs> you decided that something needed to be done to find out what things this person JD had done yeah. and what things he hadn't done. Yeah, because it was such a, it was, there were so many topics of it on OK Player about, you know, did JD do this? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, you know, let me, let me figure it out. <laughs> And at the same time, you're experimenting with HTML and, yeah, and trying to design exactly a website. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I just wanted to learn how to do a website. So, like, the first, like, Renaissance Soul website looked, like, just so basic and everything. And, and what, in sidebar is that when I eventually did the website, I wanted it to be, like, Discogs. I didn't want it to just, to just be a, um, a discography. I wanted to tell you about every press scene that existed for every one of these productions. <laughs> so I had every vinyl uh, promo, every CD promo and stuff like that. Like on the original one, I would later scrap, scrap that. But the original version, with, like in my mind, it was like I wanted it to be like Discogs. <laughs> right. And, and I was like, <laughs> so sometime in, uh, I remember you telling me the story that, you, that, that this website that you're creating happens in early 2001 and it you launch it as a way to publish a JD discography and you do it in conjunction with the release of the very first JD solo project which is Yeah whatever date Detroit. that is Talk like a I always bit about forget that. I always forget what date that is whether it's in February yeah. or March um yeah. you probably know but um <laughs> yeah well they, they you know again with these release dates it's they're always soft right so it says late february but it it, it sounds like you probably would have done it in march 2001 I think right that was still in the that was still back when okay because you know welcome to detroit came came out on bbe which is a uk label and that was back when uk uh release dates were different than u.s release dates still you know so I think there was like a release date for like the CD and then there was like a release date for the vinyl like a month later or something. Mm-hmm. So whatever, whatever the first release date was, that's when I dropped uh, Renaissance Soul. <laughs> and how did you get an audience for this? How did you spread the word about this? Website? Oh, basically, okay, player. <laughs> basically, okay, player. And um, it's, actually to kind of go back a little bit on uh, okay, player. Another cool thing that came out of OK Player was that, because um, one of the first people I met in the scene was um, One Below from the Subterraneous crew. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
he would be on OK Player with a bunch of other people. And we would, um, we would have these weekly hip hop meetings out in his place in uh, Ypsilanti, um, like every yeah. Sunday. And it'd be a whole group of like us from OK Player that were around, you know, a few people even drove in from Chicago. And it was people like, 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 uh, um, Buff One was there. And, um, um, Majestic Legend was there at times. Um, other probably other members of like Athletic Mike League, um, other members of like Subterraneous Crew, and we would just talk about hip hop and stuff like that. You know, that was like another cool thing that came out of uh, out of um, OK Player boards. And when I was developing the when I was started developing the discography, what I was doing was this, these were my sources of information. I would hear about something and then I would ask house shoes. If he didn't know, he would call Jay. And um, then he would tell me later, I'm like, did he produce that or not? Another things I would do is like, I would like, I would search the internet for anything that said James Yancey, Jay Yancey, JD, you know, Jay Dilla, any spelling of Yancey, because there's a lot of times when that was misspelled um, and see if there's any writing credits that, uh, that, you know, appeared online, you know, whether it was like, you know, wh whatever, you know, any sites that had like that sort of information, even going on like BMI and ASCAP websites and stuff like that and seeing if I could search things, wow. you know, like I was doing that. So you like really did, you really did uh, an incredible amount of research for this, not just searching the web, but you were one degree removed from James Yancey himself yeah. and house shoes acted as a conduit for that information. Yeah. And, there, and there'd be a lot of times shoes would tell me about something that Jay told him, like something was coming out and he'd be like, yo, um, Jay did this record, blah, blah, blah. Can you go find it? And this is before, you know, Discogs was really popping as a, um, like as a marketplace. So, and this was before like when eBay was just auctions, you know, and um, this is back when we had gem.com also. And then, because at the same time, I was really starting to become more of a record collector too. I wasn't a DJ yet, but I was being right. a record collector. So I was finding all like the little record stores that were off the grid a little bit that no one really knew about. So like, you know, taken to, uh, for an example, like Crustacean, that purple, the um, Tribe Called Quest mix. That was something yes. that... Uh, that was something that Dilla did that nobody knew about. Shoes told me about it. I found um, there's this website, you know, uh, in the UK. I think it's still around called the Action Records. They had the 12 inches for like 399 pounds, you know. And I bought all of them. And wow. I, you know, me and me and House Shoes just split them, you know. And it was stuff like that. I was doing like Shoes would tell me about a record. I would go find it, you know. Um, like online. And a lot of that was, you know, me building the discography too, is that I was also looking for the record too. Right. And um, so I have, I have most of this, the discography on vinyl. Like there's a few things I I'm missing, but yeah. of the stuff while he was still alive, like I got most of the stuff that's available on the format that it's available for. Right. And like, that's how I built the discography. Well, I'll tell you, you know, what, that work that you're doing and that you did was so important because when we're 
we're living history right now and we never know what it is that we're going to need to collect. I mean, I'll give you just a, a, a quick story from my first trip to Detroit to work with JD. Yeah. Uh, I brought a camera, I bought my notebook, um, but the only pictures I took were of me and Chino XL visiting the Motown <laughs> Museum <laughs> because why would I need to take a picture of JD? I mean, he's my favorite producer, but I didn't, I just didn't have the conception that I was the degree of genius and the degree of, of history that I was witnessing. So you were right. Even yeah. I didn't well, to a certain extent, I didn't know what I was well, doing. Who would? And who it was would, just like, right? I remember one time, like years after everything we're talking about now, he called me and this is back when I had just like a regular phone and I was still living in my parents' crib, a regular phone with a regular answer machine. And he left a message on my answer machine and I didn't save it. And I wish yeah. I, and I don't even know where that phone is now, you know, and yeah. I wish I still had it. You know, I'm like every day I'm like, Oh, I wish I still had it. Cause it was a cool message. But, uh, I know, man, it was just like, you're in there, you're in the middle of this something, then you don't realize what's, uh, what's eventually going to become and how important that work was. But even looking for his father's stuff, it, it's like uh, the, it's the same process of going through, looking for all the different spellings, the possible spellings of Yancey, Y-A-N-C-I-E, Y-A-N-C-Y. Yo. You know, it's, it's so it's great that you, you did that stuff because now we have it and it will never go away. And I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, I'm so glad like websites that like GeoCities and Tripod and stuff still have stuff up because every once in a while I'll find something on there that I'm looking for. Like, I'll be like, I need to know this wrestling card for a show I went to in 99. And for some reason, somebody posted it on a GeoCities page. So it, it's, it's stuff like that, you know? So pretty soon after this you actually be you go from being sort of a participant in this larger okay player community to you actually being a resource for jd and detroit related material for the the community of okay players to so tell me a little bit about how you feel you see that uh, unfold the funny thing was like that that was that was like a cool time in hip-hop because that's when you had hip-hop site you had um, underground hip hop, you had Sandbox Automatic. And at the same time, um, we, at the same time, also Michigan was like, I had my, I had webs, I had a website. And then there's a handful of other people that had, had their own Michigan hip hop site kind of covering their own peoples. You know, you had, um, um, yeah, Detroit rap, which started off stupid, but then somebody else took it over and made it kind of cool um mm. that was uncle p and then there's a uh, djknice.com and he had his own sort of stable of people um then you had subterraneous uh records.com that was one below's website that my man mosologist um was the the webmaster for and that was there was a big community within that message board that also spilled over to the okay player community there was DJ Graffiti's break, uh, breakbread.com is break-bread.com. Um, and I'm probably forgetting somebody, but oh yeah, then there's a uh, Tashir's um, website, which I'm blanking at right now, but we had a little community of, of Michigan hip hop, Detroit hip hop. That was like 
that people were going to. We didn't have a ton of traffic, but it was such a niche like community of Detroit websites that we made like the hip hop community like pay attention to Detroit hip hop and not just and not just everybody was just um pay attention to like like Eminem, D12, Kid Rock, Jack White when it came to like music in general. And we were like, okay, there's all this other stuff, you know, and it became effective, you know, it was effective. We weren't getting tons of hits, but we, it, it became effective. And um, we were all in a lot of us that were on those websites. We were also on okay player. So we were, you know, participating in that community also and doing our thing with our, with our specific group of like people that we wanted to promote. Right. Did you, you know, like as the years went by 2002, 2003, did you start to get solicited by like record companies, management artists? Oh, uh, I, I got all, drawn into that. I got that from the jump, man. Cause it was like, wow. Cause there was nobody like, there was nobody that was advocating Detroit hip hop online than me and a few other people. So, um, the moment the moment I launched, I was already in contact with like AB, ABB or no, not ABB, but oh, ABB later on, but BBE. Um, I was in contact with Daryl over at uh, at um, Up Above, um, and he, you know he would always he would send me the, like the fuck the police stuff instantly. Um, I was in contact with I was in contact with a lot of the people that weren't Detroit artists, like I mentioned earlier, but were fans of Detroit music, you know? And um, it would eventually be like this. It was like, the more it, more it grew, like the more people like would send me stuff that was like Detroit related. Didn't matter if it was local or if it was like international. Like I was uh, always in contact with Damien Hoynes from uh, Groove Attack. Of course, yeah. And yeah. Um, he would send, like, you know, he sent me the original Rough Draft record. Like, he sent me all the, he sent me any record that was Detroit related, you know, whether it had like Lax or Big Tone on it or, yeah. or anybody. Like, if somebody like, I have some like crazy, like, you know, those like German cats that bought all those uh, JD and Wajid beats, um, ASD and something. Yeah. In Berlin, yeah, like, I, I think I have yeah. those records, man. Like, um, so I was in the middle, of, like, of of you know, I was getting all that stuff from the labels, and but I also helped out to get people noticed by people. Like, um, I remember uh, years down the line, I, I had a really healthy like like collection of audio that you could listen to on the site. It was all like. It was all like in real format, like real streaming, you know. Right. And um, <laughs> so I, I always had a good, healthy collection of that. But um, I had all like the original demos of Black Milk's uh, Sound of the City. You know, like he, uh, he gave me like three joints and he was like, fresh, put those up, you know. That's great. And not too far along after that, um, um, what's, you know, uh, you know, what's, oh, why am I... Uh, why am I blanking on his name from Fat Beats? Um, that would become part of his band. Um, 
Fat Beats in New York, Fat Beats in LA. Yeah, in New York. Um, I'm looking it up for you. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Amir? No. Uh, why am I blanking on his name? Um, uh, Bill Sharp. Okay. <laughs> Eventually, Bill Sharp from, uh, from um, Fat Beats. He would he would email me and he was like, you know how you know how can I get in touch with Black Milk? I want to sign him. You know I want to talk to him. You know I love his music. So I was just like yo, I, you know I gave him his number and everything, blah blah blah. And not too long afterwards, like Black Milk was signed to Fat Beats wow. for his Popular Demand album. And I was like, and then like I actually still have the 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 record like. Bill sent me a copy of Popular Demand, and he wrote on it like, "Thank you for, you know, hooking me up with you know Black Milk and blah blah blah." Because then Bill would you know continue to work with Black Milk, you know, be a part of his band as like his DJ and stuff like that throughout the years. So that kind of right. like that started all with me. Um, someone like Big Tone, he he literally told me one day he was like, like fresh, like without you, no one outside of Detroit would have ever heard my music. That's and incredible. like you were the first person to you know get people to you know hear my music um there was now you um, actually you yeah. actually had a moment with jd at one point where he <laughs> he got to tell you how he felt about what you had done mate could you tell that story there, there was a couple but like there was like the one was more like okay the first time i met him was like at saint andrews and um i remember i i was kind of like trying to like promote my website a little bit. So I made these cheap little cards, like, and I printed them out on my thing and I was just passing them out. And um, all my, you know, all my boys that I've, I became, I became friends with at St. Andrews, they're like, yo, yo, there's, you know, JD's over there. Yo, JD's over there, go talk to him. And I'm like, oh, I never met, like met him before. And like, and so I'll go you chat. are the guy who, who has made a website dedicated essentially <laughs> Like, deserving. but to be honest with you, this is at a time where hip hop artists and everything do not know what to do with the internet. Right. They, a lot of people also thought, you know, people like me are just bootlegging their music, you know? And the only person who understood what I was doing was Fat Cat. Like he was very supportive from the beginning, understood what was going to happen on the internet yeah, and man. that, you know, what I was doing was good. So I don't know what the, so I go out there and I chop it up for them for a little bit. No, you know, big conversation or anything, but there was a time like down the road, um, this, I don't even know what year it was around the time when he gave me that, when he left that message on my voicemail. So I want to say that it was probably around 2003. I was at, I was in college. Yeah. It was probably about 2003 maybe. And we talk it, we talk on the phone. I, he was just, he was very appreciative of what I, I've done over the years. Mm. There's times to be honest, like he was kind of weird in regards towards me. Um, I don't think it was anything personal. I think he was just weird for in general. There's times when he, I think he could have like a really kind of a shitty attitude or foul attitude or a grumpy attitude. Well, any you know, of his friends would tell you that. <laughs> and uh, like, there was just a weirdness, but like this conversation I had with him, like was actually really cool. And it was just like, he's very appreciative. We were talking about, you know, possibly doing some things. 
No, that might have been like later down the line, maybe 2004 or five or something like that. Because I, cause I feel like after we had that conversation, it wasn't too long until you started having real health problems. Right. Because <laughs> we were talking about like really co collaborating with something online, you know? And um, didn't he say he was going to make you some theme music? Yeah, man. He was going to like, yeah. Like I was like, yo, could you like make me some sort of a theme music for the website that I can just play at the beginning or whatever. And like, he was down with the idea, but we, it just like, I'd never gotten like touch with him after that. Yeah. And then well, that's when you, when you start hearing things about like his health and everything. Yeah. And like, yes, yeah, that was probably like the one sort of like good conversation I had with him. Right. And that, conversation probably happened after he had moved away from Detroit because uh, yeah. you had seen him at, uh, at the uh, Detroit Electronic Music Festival in 2004 when he came back, right? Yeah. And that was after that. Well, that's amazing to have that validation. I do know from stories from his California friends that they, you know, he did get a laptop, you know, when he was out there uh, and he did start to get hip to stuff that was on the internet um, about him. Uh, so that may very well have been a part yeah. of what he, what he realized. A question for you. What do you think, when you think about the apex, like the height of your activity and your positive feelings about doing Renaissance soul as a website, when would that be? And tell us a story about that. I think that would start to be like the first few years were really good, like 2001, 2002. But I think it was like 2003 that was like really cool because I was getting a lot of music, you know. This is when J-Lib would come out. Um, and, I had a, and I had a good relationship with um, um, Jeff Jink over at uh, Stone's Throw. Right. Like he was, he, was, he was my contact over there, you know. Yeah. And he would always send me stuff like, he would send me all the Dilla stuff, you know, instantly. He would tell me about it. And I was getting all of this other, like all the other, you know, I was just, I was just hearing about everything. And I was, and I was, um, I was getting, and I was having, I was doing other projects with other people, whether it was just promoting their stuff or whatnot, being sort of a publicist even um, with other people. So like around that time was, was, was giving me outlets to other things. Like I started writing uh, a column at this uh, Toronto based website called the cyber crib about Detroit music. And I did that for a little while. And that would actually, I would, um, the funny thing was, is that I was, like I said, I was doing like public, you know, publicity and stuff. I was working, you know, short term doing public publicity for King Gordy's album mm -hmm. on web entertainment. And that's the label that like Eminem was originally signed with. That's like the label that the Bass Brothers and um, right. they own. And um, I was doing publicity for King Gordy's album. And the, the general manager there, um, Scott Guy, he was like, um, yeah, Real Detroit Weekly is looking for somebody like for their hip hop column. Do you know anybody? And I was like, oh, yeah, let me try that. You know, let me... Uh, I'll do that. You know, right. I, I, I was like, okay, I, I'm around enough things. 
and that's and the real Detroit thing was like just really popped off really quickly. I was doing like a monthly. I was doing monthly at first. Later on, they would re they would redo everything, and it would be a weekly thing. And I didn't. It would be smaller, but it'd be weekly, and I didn't like that. But I was doing this um like monthly column that I called the Loop, and um like I talked about all the Detroit stuff on there, you know, Detroit hip hop stuff, and. I was doing like cover stories and stuff like that for real Detroit. And then, and I was continuing on with, you know, here and there with, there'd be times when I would kind of take a break with a Renaissance soul, but right. I was kind of doing, I always kind of doing something with it. And I, th- I think 2003 was a good year because it was just like, we were seeing this other, this new sort of boom, like in Detroit hip hop and where Detroit hip hop was, collaborate collaborating with people everywhere it wasn't like it wasn't completely an insular thing you know right. you had jlib you had all these other things that wajid was doing you know people were finally getting out of their like detroit little hole you know and like we were seeing more of that you know that was a good year but you start to get more professional gigs <laughs> at other you know more established institutions and would you say that that sort of marks a bit of the waning of uh, your work on Rensol? Yeah, it would, because I didn't, like, I was also starting to party much more <laughs> in, De- in Detroit and actually get into DJing and stuff like that. And the website yeah. helped me get DJ gigs, too. And um, it, it was just like, there was, I was kind of getting burnt out on a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, because the more you start, the, the the thing was, the more you start partying, the more you start just being out in the scene, the more you kind of got sick of it. And we're also seeing like a little bit of a, we're also seeing a little bit of a decline also, I feel. Like, and I think hip hop had a weird time that time also, mm. like between 2004 to 2006, sure. and then even after, where what are we doing next? You know, we, there was that, that big indie boom with like J lib and mad villain and everything else that was around that type of stuff in like 2003, 2004. But then things just got like, it was just starting to, a lot of things were just starting to get old. I think I found myself going the the death of, of, of J Dilla. You had the death of proof. How Yeah. And even before that, I found myself like, like going to, cause I was DJing and the hip hop scene really didn't give me my first opportunities to DJ. It was more like the dance music scene right here in Detroit that, you know, cause I started making friends with that and I, with, with that part of the scene. And I started like being more educated about Detroit techno, Detroit house, um, even like Detroit rock and indie pop and everything, I was finding myself going in those areas mm-hmm. and I was trying to like bring that into the Renaissance soul like universe, but it just wasn't fitting, you know? And I was like, uh, but I want, I'm kind of like into a lot of this stuff now. I need my kind of hip hop break. And then when Dilla and Proof passed, there was sort of like a black cloud in Detroit hip hop. Yeah. Like 2006, 2007, maybe even a little, at, you know, 2008. 
where yeah. there was stuff happening, but nobody was just fully into it. You know, we were, everybody was and, and for me, I totally almost exited out of that for a minute and was solely DJing in like the techno and dance music crowds for like all of 2007 right. because all of 2006, all I was doing was Dilla tribute parties. And that had to, that had to be <laughs> heavy. Yeah. It was like, it was fun at first, but then I realized everybody was just asking me to play Dilla sets and I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I can do this, you know? So by the end of 2006, I was like starting to play more dance music, you know, yeah. and things that was hot at that time. That was, you know, still wasn't commercial stuff and anything underground type stuff, but it was like, eh, like, so well, that, I, marked, I that marked a long time for me. Like, even after that, I just kind of like, I kind of had like a disappointment kind of in the scene eventually, because it was just like, I was going down this, this weird burntness, like burned out going down a weird rabbit hole of just things that weren't satisfying right that makes complete sense um you know and what you talk about especially with regard to dilla is something that i've heard from many of his friends and supporters that you know i i wonder if you could i have a, i have a couple more questions for you but i wonder if before that if you could reflect a little bit on when when you see J.D., J. Dilla, James Yancey talked about uh, or, or celebrated uh, in, on the page or in events. Uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how does all that hit you? Uh, you know, because you, you reached a point, like you said, where just I can't do this anymore. How? Right. Right. When you think about how Jay Dilla is represented today and how he is thought of today, what are your thoughts on that? A lot of it's just really corny, you know? <laughs> it's just like, I'm like, who is this person that you're talking about, you know? Like, where are you getting this persona and thing that you're talking about? Give me an know? example. What's the persona <laughs> that you you hear about and then who is the real person? Oh, like for years there was this sort of like this like hallelujah sort of hippy dippy sort of thing that loomed around Dilla's legacy that I'm like nah man he was like a Detroit street cat man he like you know of course you know everybody knows he like going to the titty bars and and stuff like that and he was just like any other like you know Detroit cat you know like he, you know, to a certain extent, all dudes from the city, all hip hop dudes from the city are assholes to a certain extent, you know, some more than others, you know, and he, he's just like that, you know, he just happened to have a really amazing music making ability, you know, <laughs> and um, there was this like whole thing about it just got really corny with like the, you know, hallelujah like love and it was almost like you know the love movement you know or something he's, like he's it, portrayed it was like, as a saint in other words yeah it was this weird saintness like like 
uh, I don't know if it was like that, man. Like, you know, cause I think, uh, and I've run into it too, just researching and reporting the book is that, and this happens a lot of times to historical, um, figures, but you know, just because you're sophisticated doesn't mean you're a saint and sainthood is not the price <laughs> for being sophisticated. He was an incredibly sophisticated thinking, intentional right. producer, but, um, he loved, he, he had grown up around a lot of coarseness and he loved his pleasures. And, um, you know, those two are not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. Especially not was, Detroit. And it was weird. Just like the way a lot of people like kind of paraded his mother around after he was, um, you know, after he passed away when in all actuality, he kept his, his parents away from his music, most of his career, you know? He never let them go to any of his shows or anything like I don't know if they ever did, you know, because he wouldn't let them, you know, he was kind of like they would, you know, they would know about that, you know, they were doing stuff in the basement or whatnot. But there was like, like you really like for me, you can if you want to if you if you want to know about James Yancey, you know, the boy, the man, the person like yeah, you can talk to Ma Dukes, but if you want to talk to to Jay Dilla, the music, you really can't get much out of her, you know, because he didn't let her around, you know. And I feel like a lot of people are 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 making this persona about his music, about him being a producer, based off what you know they're getting from her, mm. which is kind of weird to me, you know. And, but you know, in all fairness, I think she cops to the fact that, you know, a great story that she tells is whenever she would try to tiptoe down from the kitchen, down the stairs to hear what he was doing in the basement, because she genuinely liked the stuff he was doing and was yeah. genuinely proud of him. He would be like, you know, what are, what are you doing lady? He would call her lady. Like, you know, but see, so, like stories like that people kind of forget or just kind of don't pay attention to. Mm and kind of pick and choose what they want. And then yeah. over the years, you've had all these stories that get like passed down and you're hearing them fourth, you know, fourth person and they're completely exaggerated, you know? And like, I'm not saying I know any stories or anything, but a lot of the stuff just doesn't sound like him. You know, it sounds yeah. very exaggerated and you're like, and that's what a lot of the events and tributes like, like came to be mm. like after he passed was like, like the sainthood or whatever. When, when all I wanted and everybody, and it got to the point where the legacy of JD was something that people would, they would hear all these stories and then they want to repeat it to you, even though, you know, you, you like, I know all this stuff, but there were, there was kind of like a, people like wanted like their gold star for like knowing stuff, you know? Right. And it was kind of hard to enjoy his music when people are always talking. <laughs> I just want to be like, <laughs> I just want to be like, yo, let's just play some music and vibe to it. Like we used to do. Like we used to. Like I could be over at house shoes spot, you know, we'd be smoking some weed and he'd play a beat tape and we're just chilling. Like yeah. no words are being spoken right. or, Oh man, do, do you know a record he sampled on that? Yo, but, or he would show me, but there would, now it turns into a big discussion like and i'm like yo can we just 
listen to the music. That's that's the big problem with the legacy is that we just don't listen to Dilla's music. It always has Man. to turn into a discussion. All talk. I love it. It's and there was all and there was also that 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 level of policing where like people would like you would hear like maybe like a a, a TV show or like a commercial would use something that Dilla produced. The first thing that would come out of someone's mouth, well, I hope I hope his estate's getting money for that. And I'm like, to the point where I'm like, that's not our problem. Honestly, that's not my problem. You know, I hope so too. But there's things about Dilla and his business and his music that guess what? Not my problem. You know, I'm, you know, I'm focused on the music. Um, and there's things that I just don't want to talk about, you know, cause it's yeah. not my problem or I just want to chill and vibe to the music. Yeah. All right. Makes complete sense. Right, so let me ask you a couple questions. Why now? Why is it important to you now to resurface the Renaissance soul name, especially with regard to this podcast? What is it that you are reaching back for and what is it that you are rebirthing? Man, for a long time where I was like, yo, I'm not going to bring Renaissance soul back in any way. I'm not going to use the name or whatever. Why? There was because I was, I didn't want to go back to that past. I just didn't want to relive the, the past for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. I, I really don't understand why, but for some reason I always paid for the domain every year. <laughs> I always paid for the domain. I they was, make it easy. I was like, all right, I'll pay for the domain. Um, but um, I, I just didn't want to go back to it because I didn't know how to, I had a lot of mixed feelings in hindsight about my time in the music scene um, that I think I've been able to clear up over the past like three years by going like, cause I started going to therapy three years ago and I feel like I've been able to come to terms with a lot of things that I thought I wish I did do during that time. Um, Cause I feel like I could have done more with like my, you know, connections, my, my network during that time, but I just didn't know how to do it. And no one around me knew how to do it, do it for themselves anyways. So there right. wasn't like this sort of idea, like, like nowadays you have like everybody and their mother that are like with their professional hacks and, you know, you have the Tom Billios of the world and stuff like that, you know, you tell you how to like get your mind together for business and everything. You know, we didn't have that shit back then and like our access to it or anything. Um, and there, there was just a lot of like toxic thought back then, you know, whether it was, you know, you, you know, cats still thinking they're still on the block or, you know, misogynistic, you know, uh, thoughts, homophobic thoughts, like, all those sort of attitudes was so like prevalent back then that it was just like, I don't really want to go back to that time, you know, and I've moved on. But then I kind of like started, I think, I think this is, this was kind of like something a lot of people have gone through over the past few years where they realize the music industry isn't the same anymore, that we have all these tools that we can do it for ourselves they've given up on the, you know, the dream record deal and stuff, the, the rap 
dreams or whatever. And they started making music again that was fun for them. And a lot of, a lot of people are making the best music they've ever made out of their lives after reconciling a lot of shit in their lives, you know? We're seeing Big Tone make the best music of his life. You're seeing Royce the Five Nine make the best music of his life. House Shoes is able to put out a whole record label full of very talented uh, producers and whatnot. You know, you're seeing people who are were trying, who are finally doing the thing that they wish they were able to do like 15, 20 years ago. And they're even better at it than they were back then, you know? And that's where like, kind of like I became. And the funny thing is about this, um, like my, my other podcast, my main podcast, Fresh is the Word, you know, I'm in the 200s now, but I don't think I really started finding my sweet spot until after 70 episodes. And then I took a, took like a six month break. That's when I started going to, uh, to, um, to, to, to therapy. And then I started sort of branching out to a lot of different things that made me like learn more about myself, you know, whether it was like, you know, um, like, like sex podcasts or more stuff about, you know, podcasts about the black experience or, you know, just other forms of music, you know, having, you know, interviewing rock bands, um, um, doing like all those other things. And the thing was, um, during this time that like, I was kind of a little, you know, I stepped back from the, um, the hip hop scene and just the music scene in general, I was still doing stuff because I was, um, a contributor for, um, Huffington post. And I was doing that while I was in a really bad relationship for like three years, like, like three years of like Huffington posting was from like 2011 to 2018. 2012 to 2014 I was in this bad relationship and that and just writing for Huffington Post kept my name out there you know and I was actually still building my name maybe more than I was before during that time so that's after all of this it was just like I started thinking I started kind of reminiscing about a lot of things and I was like more I, I, I was more resolved about it than I yeah. used to be. And there was, there was a wrestling podcast. Well, there's a few wrestling podcasts that were, um, um, one was with, um, one's called 83 weeks with, uh, Eric Bischoff he used to be the head of, uh, WCW wrestling in the uh, late nineties. And what they would do. And the guy that, um, the guy that runs the, who hosts the podcast with him, Conrad Thompson, he does, he did two other ones with uh, other wrestling people. And what they would do was they would take a specific topic, whether it be an era, a pay-per-view, a particular wrestler, a particular show, and they would break down everything in regards to that topic. And I realized, I'm like, yo, I want to do that, but for like Detroit music, you know? And like, that's when like the gears started rolling in my head about like doing this podcast is because like I wanted to t- I wanted to take a take a, a, a take a topic from the past and then break down everything about it. You know. That- so that is that's the idea behind this new <laughs> Renaissance Soul podcast. Yeah, and then recently I realized, you know what? 
let's not just do it about history. Let's do it about significant releases that are happening now. Hmm. Because there's some, and I got that idea kind of with Miss Corona's album, her EP called The Virus EP. <laughs> and this is someone who's like, <laughs> like we're going through a pandemic with a, a virus called the coronavirus. She's wondering if she should change her name. And then she puts out this EP that is very smart. Yeah. It talks about like everything going on from the eyes of a black woman, the black community. And I'm like, you know, what? I don't want to wait to talk about this. I want to talk about this now, you know? So, and I've done it with other artists too. Like I did, um, I did big, like, I did Big Tone and House Shoes' album because there was so much about that record that talked about Detroit hip hop history. Right. And then I, you know, and then I also did Apollo Brown's um, um, album. Um, why am I forgetting? Sincerely Detroit, because that's historical because it has so many different Detroit artists on one album, and that would have never happened, like like in my day back then that would have never happened, you know? So to me, that was a historical thing. So historical things can be new, you know? Right. So I wanted like to touch on those. So we're, that's the word historical is going to be like the center, the center frame of Renaissance soul, whether it's older stuff or newer stuff. And it's going to be through all genres, you know, because I've, I've experienced all the scenes here in Detroit. Well, uh, so what are some episodes that you're currently planning? If you can share that. Oh, I already like the thing is with um, I've recorded so many episodes for this, mm. and uh, let me bring my. And the thing is, also, I wanted to like go outside the box a little bit with the episodes too, and kind of. It almost speaking, like have some episodes that were almost about theory, if that makes sense. Like the theory, mm -hmm. like I have a, I have an episode with, um, with a graphic designer, um, Mario Butterfield, like, you know, skinny boy, you, you would like any, like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the Detroit releases you see, like, if you look at the, the, the packaging, you know, Mario right. Butterfield, you know, did the cover. So we talk about, we have a whole conversation about the branding and the look of Detroit, how he came to be, how, because Detroit's kind of a hard thing to brand because there's so many different styles and we don't have a necessary, we don't have a, a singular hook to any of it, you know, like down South, you could have, you had at one point you had crunk music. That could be something that you could, you know, really market, but Detroit didn't have like one thing you know um then also um another episode that i was so happy to be able to do is um do an episode about the dead flowers album from isham back in you know 1999 this is like 1995 you know to me that's one of like one of the most influential albums to like street rap in detroit like of all time you know Plus, Isham's one of my favorites of all time. So it was like, that was the, no, I, I interviewed him uh, once before, but like that's the first time me and him got to do like a one-on-one. -on -one, and that was like fantastic. Um, I also talked with Wendell Harris from, um, from Tribe Records, um, the jazz uh, 
the jazz crew from back in the day. And he's still put, he's still making music and everything. And um, earlier this year, Strut Records put out a, uh, an album of Chai Records from a certain period. And we kind of talk about what was going on in Detroit during that period. Um, also, um, I do, you know, do uh, a, uh, an episode about Fat Father's new album. Um, that's mm-hmm. cool to hear because, like, he's actually a good father, you know? <laughs> like, he's like a cool, like, dad, you know? And we talk about how hip-hop and being, in, being a father, you know, being like, you know, hip-hop was always told as, you know, a young person's game. But we talk about how it is to be a father and a little bit older. Um, then I also talk with Fred Thomas, who's the band leader of, uh, of the band um, Saturday Looks Good to Me. And they were, they were a favorite of mine when I started, you know, dipping into like the indie rock, indie pop sort of Michigan things. And like that album was like, like so super cool because, and even when we were talking, it was another one of those things where there was all these people he collaborated with and you can go listen to their albums and they had cool albums, you know? So it's stuff like that. Like that's, that's like most of the stuff that I'm, um, that I already have, um, recorded um and i have just like a ton of other ideas in my mind it's going to be like you know it's going to be things where we just talk about and i want to know about like everything during that time i want to know what those people were going through during that time what their life was like like just every little nut and bolt story of everything and i eventually want to get to it where i'm doing very obscure releases like stuff that like why would anybody even listen to this <laughs> this episode like stuff that's like are like wh- why would you even care to even get these people together to talk about that but it would be something that i love totally <laughs> but the conversation makes it interesting so i listen yeah, i I, yeah. I have one more important question for you and that is uh to you what does it mean to be from Detroit. What does it mean to be a Detroiter? And why is that important to you? You know, I think um, being from Detroit is like, I, th- I think it gives you a, a really good like work ethic. You know, you're already like, we're a working class area, you know, we're a part of the, you know, the industrial revolution. Now it's like in our, uh, you know, in our DNA. But like at the same time is like, it's, there's a, it can be, you know, the Detroit area can still be a bit like, like separated, you know, segregated would be a better word, you know, um, Detroit's a really, you know, it's heavy, heavily black. You have uh, Dearborn, which is the biggest Arab population outside the Middle East. Um, then you have little pockets of other uh, nationalities and stuff. And so, so you get these sort of like tastes of, of knowledge and culture that necessarily isn't the, the mainstream version of anything that's, Hmm. you know, deemed like ethnic or cultural, you know, you kind of get like the underground sort of version and there it just 
you learn, you, you just kind of like Detroit, like we, like someone once told me this and it really kind of, I'll, I'll it's, it's Cornelius Harris of um, underground resistance. Like, course, their manager. Yeah. yeah. He once told me that like the Detroit is like the future. Like if you want to see, if you want to experience what might happen everywhere else, look at the Detroit, Detroit. And that means everything, whether it's growth or poverty, you know, if you want to like, if you wanted to find out, find out a way, you know, you want to find an example of what, um, what might happen in your city, look in Detroit, you know, because we kind of experienced everything and it always kinds of looms around still, you know, we see the after effects of anything that's ever happened. So Detroit's kind of a place where both history and present are always kind of exists and there's still a battle between yeah. both of those. Yep. Man, K fresh. I, I wish you uh, all the best on this, this new launch, man. I'm so honored to, to be able to ask you a few questions about it and to, and to thus be a part of it. I'm Thank you for listening to the Renaissance Soul podcast. Hosted and produced by myself, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. Empowered by Anchor at anchor.fm slash renaissance soul. Renaissance Soul theme music provided by Steve O. You can find more of his productions at imsteveo.bandcamp.com. And that's E-Y-E-A-M-S-T-E-V-E-O.bandcamp.com. Renaissance Soul is available on all streaming platforms. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you want to support Renaissance Soul, please consider pledging via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh the word. Follow Renaissance Soul on social media on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Pod. And join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fresh the word. And for more information on Renaissance Soul, visit freshthepodcast.com. Thank you for listening and your support. Goodbye and good night. Renaissance. 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 Renaissance.